Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Our scripture reading today will come from Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's escape in the king's palace more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I would say it was probably about 25 years ago, this was the most difficult Sunday for a gospel preacher. Not because it was a Sunday he was speaking on marriage and divorce, or what does the Bible say about homosexuality, but because on Sunday evening everyone wanted to get home and not miss a single play of the Super Bowl. But you know what? We have DVR now. And we don't have to worry about missing a single play. We can get home and start it from the beginning, and we don't have to know the score. We don't have to know anything. We can watch it as if we'd been home the whole time. I'm thankful for DVR. Brother Troy is right. The dots that the women wear is because of their religion, but it's also tied in with their culture. Many women, when they hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ, they want to be followers of Jesus Christ. They no longer want to be in Hinduism, and so they want to remove that. But their husbands, many times, if they're not Christians, they do not want that to happen. Because to the husband, it is a sign that she belongs to him. And if she removes that dot, and she's saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And to her husband, he feels as if she's saying, I'm no longer important to her. And so it is a difficult thing when you want to be a follower of Jesus, not of one million idols, and you remove the dot from your head. And so many times you will see them doing that. The men won't do it, the women do. And many times you'll see uh, tattoos they have. The children in the orphanage, many times they'll have markings on their head. But that is important to know about the culture and what it means to a woman, a Christian woman, when she removes that and the difficulty she faces if her husband is not a Christian. I'm thankful to be here this evening. Again, of course, this morning was a wonderful morning, and we talked about that because it is God's day, and He created it, and because of the weather and the opportunity to meet together as God's people. And I'm glad we're able to do so again this evening. I'm especially glad because I love to talk about India. It's been important to me for a long time. As mom and dad have been involved in the work since, I'd say, the early 2000s. Dad's first trip was in 2002. I remember picking him up for the airport. When he got home and we're riding back from Nashville and he says, one day I want you to go with me. And we were able to do that this past April. And so I'm very thankful that we were able to do that. God gave us time and things worked out that we were able to go to India together. This evening we will be continuing with the thought throughout the lesson for such a time as this. And we'll we'll talk more about that in a moment. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Esther, the fourth chapter We will be there and we'll talk about Esther. This is a picture from the other side of the mountain. One of the major cities, and I'll show you a map later, one of the major cities in which we work is Rampa. When you get the newsletter, it says the Rampa Tuni Mission Work. Those are the two major cities in which we we work in. I guess you could say they're sort of like headquarter cities. 
And this is across the mountain in Rampa. We leave the mountains and we cross over and the road is not paved. It is the worst road I have ever seen in my whole life. Dad's been over that road before sometime. He may remember very well. Mom, mom may also have gone on that road. And as you're crossing over the mountain, it zigzags back and forth. And three times we saw big trucks that had tumbled off the side of the mountain had burned up and they can't remove the trucks. They're there. They get them off the road. And as we get up to the top of the mountain, we're missing potholes that your car would sink down into and we stop. And Brother John tells the driver to stop and he says, Brother, look over here. And I look out the window and there's a, just a little dirt path. We're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, nowhere. Miles from any village. There's no electricity. There's no cell phone signal. And he says, Brother, that is a path that leads to a village where there are five Christians. It's that mountain range. He says, brother, it is 10 kilometer walk to the village. And that is the only way to get to the village. Five Christians, 10 kilometers off the road. And the way back there is a dirt path. Pray for our brothers and sisters in India. He says, brother, we're going to try to build a building there one day. That's going to be a task. Because whatever materials they have to carry, they have to carry 10 kilometers in to build a building there. And we passed over the mountain range. And we came to this river and it was beautiful. That's India. It is a beautiful place. The beautiful people. When you arrive in the airport, one of the very first things you see is an idol. This is one of many, many, many idols. It's hand carved. Someone spent a lot of time working on that idol. And it's decorated there with a plant that stands about five feet tall. And that's India. Everywhere there are idols. Some 50 feet tall. Some as tall as this ceiling in the middle of a field. And you think, there's no one around, there's no village, but they put it there because it is a god of their crops. And so the idol stands there, and it's massive, and they're everywhere, that's India. This you may have a hard time to see, but this is a receipt from McDonald's in the airport. It is a nine-piece chicken nugget, not a ten-piece chicken nugget, not a six-piece, not a twenty, a nine-piece chicken nugget, and they are the best McDonald's chicken nuggets in the world. They're better than the ones here in the States. I'm not kidding. It's not because we're really hungry. They were really, really good. And when you go up to the menu, it's chicken and chicken and chicken. They don't eat beef because of Hinduism. So order a nine-piece chicken nugget, and there you order everything separate. The nuggets are separate. The fries are separate. The drink's separate. The sauce is separate. And so it came out to be 420 rupees and 26 cents. That's about $5 in American money, a little over between 5 and $6. You couldn't get that amount of food in the States for that much, especially ordering a la carte. So to let you know a little bit about the way things are in India, food is somewhat cheaper, clothes a little more expensive. This is outside of the home in Tuni where we stay, the other major city. That's the power pole. And everyone goes and they tie their line into that power pole. It's not done by the co-ops, not done by an organized group. It's the man takes the line and he takes the other and he ties it in so he can have power for his home. It's illegal. It's, it's definitely wrong and it's very, very dangerous. And they've said many times there are many widowed women because their husbands were electrocuted trying to get power. And you see that. That's life in India. Just wanted to share that with you. That's life in India. India is a very, very large country. It's going to surpass China within a few years. It's very, very close to 2 billion people. We work in the southern state of Andhra Pradesh. And it's marked there as a very long rectangular state. Many, many mountains on the interior part. Beautiful mountains. You saw the picture earlier. Beautiful mountains. I love mountains. And so we enjoy our time there in India. 
Here's a closer view of the state of Andhra Pradesh. You can see it there highlighted in red. To the north is the Telangana state. We do a little bit of work there. There are Christians there. They're assembling the Lord's Day and worshiping. To the south in Tamil Nadu, they speak another language down there in some parts, but there are Christians down there. There are Christians all over in India. And I imagine at this point, there may be more Christians in India than there are in the United States. And it is not a joke that one day they may come to the United States as missionaries. The great thing about India is not that it is growing and that there is a Hindu country and a Hindu Hindu nation, but because they endure the persecution. And they're not surrounded as we are, as much with the worldliness. People have cell phones and they have television, but they're not parading in the street dressed as the opposite sex or with their clothes off, proud of their sexual immorality. And it may come that way one day in India. Here's a more detailed view of the state. Vizak, which is up in the very top right-hand corner there, it's a very nice place, a very nice airport. You arrive there, you don't feel like you've left the United States at all. Very nice, very populated. There are people standing on top of people, standing on top of people. In McDonald's, one person will work the fries. Not one person working the fries and the nuggets and the burger. It's one person because there's so many people. And so in Vizak, you see many, many people. I tried to draw a line to get an idea. We'll, we'll land in Vizak and drive about two and a half hours to Tuni. That's the first blue mark there in the check mark. We spent a couple of days in Tuni. That's a very populated location. There are many congregations around in that area. And from there, we went down to the next check mark at the bottom. You can't see the label of that, but that's Katamuru. And it is a little more rural. It's a little more in, in the country land, but we go, it's not far from Kakanada. It's a very large place, and we stayed in Kakanada. And then from there, we went to Rampa Shadavar, and we call it Rampa, and it is more in the mountainous area, and that was the last check mark. And that's the locations that we went on our trip. And this is just in the northern small section of Andhra Pradesh. That's not counting all the work that's going all the way down in the more southern regions. There are 94 million people in that state. 94.0 million people. I think there are some 330 million people in the United States. There's 94.5 just in that one state alone. And there's very many areas where there's not anybody living. They're concentrated in these cities. And when you go into a city, there are just people on top of people on top of people. And you can't imagine how do they live there. There are 2,600 congregations that are involved in this work. 70% of them have elders. 70%. That's a good number. Very good number. Very encouraging. That although they may be in a far out region, they may not have electricity, they might not have the means that you and I have, they're still following the word of God, and God wants there to be elders. Shepherds in the congregations, and that's what they're attempting to do. 70% of the congregations have elders. There are 1,200 preachers. Not all of them are supported financially with help from the states. Because some preachers work in congregations where the congregation is large enough and they have the means they can support that preacher or he may go to three congregations in the Lord's Day. And the offering is very unique. They have a box in the front and they'll all stand and begin to sing a song and everyone will walk to the front and they'll put their offering in the box. And every single person gives something. 
Many times it's just a few coins. They may have some rupees. The bill is wadded up and put in there. I don't know how much it is. I don't count it. But everyone is giving something. And so in some locations, preachers can be supported. But with 1,200 preachers, it's very difficult in certain locations. And so we help as many as possible. We have two schools of preaching, one in Tooney and one in Rampa. And there are roughly 75 students right now between those two schools. In 2022, there was 1,709 conversions. It's a lot of souls that were saved through the efforts that congregations like this are involved in. I don't know how often you think this way. I don't know if it comes into your mind very much, but sometimes we don't see when we offer to the Lord and the elders in their wisdom choose to use those monies in certain areas. We don't always see, we don't always know, but God knows. And maybe it'll be this way. We stand in heaven one day and we're there worshiping God and maybe it's this way. And we look and we see all these Indian Christians here. We saw all these Christians from South America here in places where we've been involved in and done work before. And we don't know, but God knows what your efforts have done, the giving of your means and your time and your prayers, that those individuals learned about God and obeyed His will and are in heaven. Thank you very much for your continued support of this work, for your prayers, for your interest in it. Many of you are involved individually and in some of your groups and, of course, the congregation as a whole. We're very, very thankful for your involvement in this work. It doesn't cost a dime to pray. We ask for your prayers. We ask that you pray continually for the work that is going on in India and for us as we attempt to do the Lord's will there and bring glory to Him. In April, uh, Dad shared this with you, I'm sure. We preached in 38 villages in April. There were 394 conversions while we were there at that time. After that, in the weeks following, there were 230 more. Because we went and preached in villages, tent meetings. Many people heard, but they were reluctant. Maybe reluctant because the woman knew, if I go home and tell my husband I'm not going to be a Hindu anymore, he may disown me. Sons may have went home and thought, if I leave Hinduism, and I follow Jesus Christ, my Father's inheritance promised to me, I won't receive. And so some were reluctant. Some needed to study more, and then they chose to put on Christ. And we're very thankful that many people in our April campaign of last year put on Christ in baptism. July and August, there was a great flood, terrible flood. We'll talk more about it later, and I'll share some pictures with you of that. We sent 76,000 dollars in flood relief and it was much needed much needed when you see the pictures later you'll understand why there's such a great need and then in our november campaign this past november there are 207 baptisms our purpose that time was a little different we'll talk more about that in a moment we were there for preacher lectureships preachers come together preachers study together and so we'll talk more about that there's still 207 baptisms 12 church buildings were opened And, of course, the preacher lectureships that we were involved in. You've given money for a well before. We don't often see wells because many of the wells that are are placed are in very remote areas. And maybe the Lord wills in the future we'll go and we'll be in a remote area where we'll see more and more of the wells. But in this one location right outside of Rampa, this is a home out in the country. They're not close to a village it would probably take them 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes or so to walk back into Rampa. And so they try to be very self-sustaining. They needed a well. They were hand-pumping their water. And it was very difficult to do that. They've got several cows. They've got sheep. Or not sheep, they have goats. They have chickens. They're trying to do everything they can to live there and to take care of themselves. 
When dad and I were there in April, the cashew trees were blooming. They'll eat the cashew, and I didn't know this, and maybe you didn't either, but the cashew has fruit also. And when the fruit's ripen, they'll eat the fruit, and they'll eat the cashew nut. And of course, when we're there in November, there's no cashews growing, but there was a vine with what looked like a big watermelon. It's a big gourd, and they'll cut it up and use it for different things. And they're trying to do everything they can, and that water was very helpful for them because they're able to water the crops that they're trying to grow. Bicycles. Some of you have purchased bicycles for preachers. That is a, such an important tool. Remember, if he's going to three villages on the Lord's Day, he may be walking to some, but a bicycle will be a more important tool for him. He'll get on the bicycle and he'll ride, and sometimes he may leave early out in the morning. He'll go to one location and preach. He'll go to another, and he's going to a third place, and it may be dark. And so sometimes he'll have a flashlight on the front, a lantern, so that he can see. And many times they'll put a PA system on the back, And they'll go throughout the village during the week and they're preaching their microphone. And everyone in the village can't help but hear the gospel. And so there are preachers with their bicycles. This was a sewing school. This had been in the plans for a long time. When we were in Tooney, we were able to see the sewing school. The instructor's there on the right. She's going to make $150 to teach a class for several weeks. You see many of these women around, some young and some old, but they're widows. In India, a widow isn't necessarily a woman whose husband has died. In India, a widow is one maybe her husband has abandoned her. She has no means of income. And it could be possible her husband has died. And these women as Christians, they can't just go down to the Dollar General or Walmart and get a job. It doesn't work that way. They want to provide for themselves and their families. And so the sewing school provides that. They'll receive a sewing machine, but it's no good to give a sewing machine to a woman if she doesn't know how to use it. And so they'll train them. And now... This year, we are attempting to have sewing schools in Tooney and in Rampa so that these women can be trained. Several of you have provided money for sewing machines. And I want you to see that, that they're having those schools and they're utilizing those sewing machines. Here's a picture of a sewing machine. It doesn't require electricity because some places there's no electricity. So they're working the foot pedal. And they have, of course, the needles and thread and garments that they need to be able to make for themselves and their family and to have some type of income. For such a time as this, that's our theme. So let's look at the book of Esther. In chapters 1 through 4, we are introduced to several individuals. The events of Esther are very unique, and Hollywood would be wise to look and see the story of Esther. It would make a great movie and maybe draw attention to God. Although God's name does not appear in the book at all. The only book in the Bible in which God's name does not appear. But he is definitely not absent in the book of Esther. Not by any means. Xerxes is the Persian king. Jews are in captivity. Esther, she's there. And she's selected of all the women that Xerxes looks upon. He chooses her, a Jewish woman. And she becomes the queen, his wife. You have Haman. He's an evil man. He seeks to destroy the Jews. He wants all of them wiped out. Probably because he sees their number and it's great. And he's concerned that if they take over, then I'm doomed. And then you have Mordecai. He's a Jew. He's Esther's cousin. And he happened to be an adoptive, like an adoptive father to her and has raised her up. And he is there also. And he encourages her to act. And that's the scripture reading this evening. It was from chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He sent a message to Esther. He says, do not think in your heart that you will escape from the king's palace any more than any other Jews. That though you're there, you're married to the king. Don't think you're going to get out of this, Esther. 
Where if you complete, remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise the Jews from another place. And Mordecai know that for certain? Had someone told him or revealed it to him? No, but look at his confidence. If you don't do something, somebody will, because deliverance will be provided. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's all I thought when we were in India. For such a time as this. How do I not know that this very day and these circumstances have been allowed and granted to us and we're here at this time not for glory of ourselves, but for glory to God. And He's provided these opportunities for us. You think it was just by random selection that she was chosen of all the women? Xerxes chose her. The events that follow this, she gets up the courage and she, she asked the king, King, I have a request. She said, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And she said, I want to have a feast. And so she has a feast and she asks, bring Haman to the feast. And so he brings Haman. And maybe she was a little scared. And when he gets, what's your request? She says, well, tomorrow I'm going to have a feast. And will you and Haman come to the feast? Yes, we'll come to the feast. In the next chapter, the very beginning verse, it says Xerxes could not sleep. He was restless and he just called for the book of records. He calls for the book of records in the middle of the night. He can't sleep. And what does he read? He reads that some man, Mordecai, had told some of the king's people that there was an assassination plot. And he says, I want to, I want to honor this man. And so the plan goes in place. And this is where Hollywood would be great to get a story like this. This true account. And so what does Esther do? In her courage, she goes before the king and she says, Haman is seeking to destroy God's people. And because the king truly knew who needed to be honored, it was Mordecai, not Haman. And Haman, the very gallows he wanted to see Mordecai die on, those are the ones he were hung on. And Esther, in her courage, because she took the opportunity for such a time as this, and she says, I'll do it. Remember, God's plan is going to be accomplished. Mordecai and Esther have no certainty. He says, If you don't do something, deliverance is going to arise from some other place. It might not be God's will to work through her, but she didn't know that. All she knew was, here's the opportunity. I'm in this position, and how do I not know that I'm where I am right now for this very thing? And that's the statement that you and I must consider. Maybe you live where you live in the neighborhood you live in, your neighbors with the people you're neighbors with because only you could go to them and talk to them about Jesus Christ. I couldn't. I don't know them like you know them. Maybe some of you have lived by them for 50 years and only you could go to them and say, let's study the Bible together. Maybe it's the position you're in at work. Maybe you've excelled throughout your career and you've done well and now you're over many, many people and so you have an opportunity that only you can have. Will you take that opportunity? Because I can't go in that position. I don't know those people like you do. They don't work under me. Maybe you and only you have the opportunity. How do you not know that you're where you are in life for such a time as this? And so the question is, will you take that opportunity? She did. This evening we'll look at the four aspects of our trip. We mentioned the preacher lectureships. We opened church buildings. We visited flood-affected areas. And then we visited orphans and widows. Remember, for such a time as this, 
The first one I showed you in the map was Tooney. That's about a two and a half hour drive from Vizac, and we were late. We missed our flight on, uh, that was Wednesday morning in India, we missed our flight. And so we didn't make it to the first of the two-day lectureship, but when we arrived, they had the sign ready for us, and they were ready to greet us there. You see me standing in the middle in the pink shirt. To my left, your right, would be Brother Jimmy G. He is in the Cookville area. He went with us, and I know some of you are familiar with Brother Jimmy G and his involvement in the Asian ministries. To my left, or yes, to my right, your left, is Brother John Ratnam to his Right, your left is Brother John Anand, and then over to the right is Brother Solomon. Brother Solomon lives in Tooney. And I showed you the picture of the electric pole, all the lines. We stay in his house, or what was his house. He gave up his house. And he lives here at the church building so that when we come to the country and work, we can stay in the house that he once lived in. And he has some family members that live there, but he gave up his house so that we might stay there. I know you can't see it, but that bottom floor there is where one of the classes was conducted. That's where the sewing class was. And when you walk into that location, there are little doors to the right, and that's where the preachers stay. It's a cot, and it's a wooden box for them to put their things in. They lay down at bed at night, and they wake up in the morning, they go study the Word of God. And on the Lord's Day, they preach. This location, we preached many lessons in the day that we had there about the authority of God, the authority of Jesus Christ, uh, the one true church, repentance, and forgiveness. A picture of Brother Jimmy G. He's in the bottom floor there. The top floor is the church building. He's preaching. After every lesson, we offered the Lord's invitation. Every lesson. It's a lectureship. That's typically not done in the States, but in that case, we offer the Lord's invitation after every lesson. And then... Men were allowed to ask questions. And that will make you that will make you nervous. Especially when you're talking about premillennialism and they want to ask you questions about revelation. And you don't want to tell them, I, I'm sorry I can't answer it. And so you do the best that you can to answer their questions. And so we had some challenges like that. There's a man standing after the lessons over with, and when you're teaching, you think they're all Christians. They're all preachers. It's a preacher lectureship. And so all of these are Christian men and they're coming to study the Bible and they have the same questions that you and I have and they hope to have those questions answered. Sometimes it was a question like, why did Jesus say, believe and be baptized, but Peter says, repent and be baptized? Is there a difference? We never heard anybody say that before. When you answer that question the best you can because there are several things that one must do in order to become a Christian. And so they have the opportunity to ask questions. And as the Lord's invitation is offered... There are individuals that are going to respond. For such a time as this in Tooney. We're preaching the intent of preaching to preachers. They received outlines. They're going to take those lessons and go back to the congregations where they preach. But notice there are women. The preacher's coming from the village and he's inviting people in his village. Members and not members. People he's been studying with in the village, he's inviting them to come. And so we're not just preaching to preachers or teaching preachers. We're teaching those who have been invited for such a time as this. What if they didn't have that lectureship in Tooney? What if that preacher said, "Uh, it's too, too difficult, too long of a journey. We can't get a ride. I don't have time. What if those excuses were made? What if for that one day we were there, certain things didn't happen? For such a time as this, that those women put on Christ in baptism because they were there at that that location, the opportunity provided, and they chose to become Christians. Those young men you see there to the right, they look like grown men, they're teenage boys. 
Their fathers are preachers. And they came with their fathers. What if their father had not come? Maybe that was the only time. We don't know. In Esther's case, she was the one that could go before the king. Maybe it was this time. For such a time as this in Tuni. And souls were converted to Christ. The second location in Katamuru. This is inside the church building. There's about a hundred preachers there. And what the picture does not show is outside the back of the building. That's where they cook food. We're there for two days. And so they're cooking food for them morning, noon, and night. And there are women. And there are men. And there are children that are sitting out back. You can't see. There's probably 50 to 75 out there. And you can't see the outside. There's Brother John standing there. If you go out the door right there to the side, there's probably 200 people sitting outside in that location, an open area underneath the tent. There are a lot of people there. Back behind that area, the church building, that's where one of our schools is, the Herald School of Biblical Instruction. This location, there are men who were denominational preachers. They wanted to become New Testament Christians. They put on Christ in baptism. They want to preach. And so now they have the opportunity to come to this school and to learn. Brother Jimmy is there preaching over the two days. And you see all these men are back there. So there's an additional group of men who are studying. Brother John's standing there leaning up against the column. And he's interpreting it's toward the end of the lesson. And there's a man sitting behind him that you can't see. And I'd seen that man for two days. And I thought he's a preacher. He's here studying. He's taking notes. He's got his Bible open. The very last lesson, it may have been this lesson here, the very last lesson of the second day, the Lord's invitation is extended after each lesson and the man stands up. And Brother John says, Brother, this is one of the denominational preachers we've been studying with. This is in November and August. John had the opportunity to go way far south. One man who became a Christian went to this school, traveled back home about five hours south, And he began teaching the gospel. And he was able to study with the denominational preachers. About 80 denominational preachers came together. It doesn't happen here. They're going to come together and they're going to tell you which way. And you're going to do it this way and that way. Or they're going to say, we're all trying to go the same place. But they came together to study. And that man was at that meeting. And they continued to study with that man. And he came this day in this opportunity. And he said, I want to become a New Testament Christian. He left denominationalism. He left his way, his desires, and he turned to Jesus Christ. What if this hadn't happened? What if that one man who lived five hours south had not said, I'll spend the time and I'll study with this man? We don't know. For such a time as this, that that man and many others had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And again, it's not because we're there. It's not because we're special and so better than it. It's not it at all. It's because the opportunity God's provided. Because the message that we preach, they've heard before. And when they hear it the second, the third, maybe the fourth time, and they hear it from someone in another country, they say, okay, I'll believe. Because many people can't read. And so they're taking your word for it. When you read and tell them God's word says it, they just trust you because they can't read for themselves. And you can show them. And as the card was mentioned, there are many things that show us the Bible is true. For such a time as this in Katamuru. This is after one lesson. There's a young man and old man, young woman and old woman. And there are many that time that were there. For such a time as this. What if that had not taken place? What if that location wasn't there? What if the Lord's people didn't meet at that place? We don't know. For such a time as this. The opportunity was there and what do they do? They seized the opportunity. 
And they did something to bring glory to God. And then souls were converted to Jesus Christ. Third location is in Rampa. Very beautiful church building. Very, very many Christians there. There's an engineering college there. There is what we might call a high school that's located there. Behind the church building, and just a short ways over, is a hospital and a dentistry. And so there are a lot of people. The Lord's Day, that building will be nearly full. That's one of the lessons. I believe that's repentance and uh, forgiveness lesson. And you can't see it. The picture doesn't show it. But to the left, just at the bottom corner, there you see those men sitting there in the front row. There's a door open there. And as we're speaking, and they're interpreting, we have some visitors, and they're walking outside the building. Mom and Dad know what that building looks like on the outside. And we have some visitors, and they're walking outside. And, of course, we always welcome visitors, but not that day. Because when that monkey came in that door, right there in front of those men, that was not a welcome visitor. (laughs) That was a big monkey who could have torn our faces off. And I look over, I'm pointing, and they have no idea. They they don't know, and I'm pointing, the monkey's right over there. And the man finally sees him, and he yells. And I said, brother, the monkey wanted to repent. (laughs) And he wouldn't interpret that. (laughs) And I said, that monkey will come near repenting more than some who are here hearing the gospel. There's a group of men who are studying. Again, we think they're all preachers. They're all Christians. In the back part of that uh, location, there's another room there of study, and that was where another class would be held. And you see that room full of men there. And again, the Lord's invitation is extended after every lesson. Men are allowed to ask questions. I liked this setting. It felt, it felt more comfortable, I guess, because we were closer to one another. You could see their faces better. After one lesson, there were 14 men. 14 men. Who I thought they were Christians. They're sitting out their Bibles open. They're taking notes. It's a preacher lectureship for such a time as this. That they were there. A preacher's lectureship. And 14 men chose to put on Christ in baptism. This is back in the church building. i show you the picture there. That was after a lesson. You see there's many men, young and old. And there's a woman standing there. And I've highlighted that man. He comes... Invitations offered, and they invite everyone to come. And Brother John's standing there, and he looks down to the man, and he says something to him in Telegoon. He says, to me, he says, that's one of our brothers. He's been preaching for three years now. And he asked him, Brother, why have you come? And he said, I lied. He said, I'm not a Christian. He came from Katamuru. That was a place not far from, um, or he came from Kakanada, not far from Katamuru. He'd been working with him for three years preaching the gospel. And he says, brother, I am not a Christian. I've lied. They took his word for it. He comes and says, I'm a New Testament Christian. I'd like to preach. And so they talk with him and they learn who he is. And they said, sure, yes, preach the gospel. I don't have to have a certificate to see that you're a Christian. I'm going to take your word for it. You say, I'm a New Testament Christian. We believe one another. And so they believe this man. But in that day, in that opportunity... Maybe there was no other opportunity. Maybe no other day for such a time as this that that man could have continued in his deception and deceived many for all the years he preached. But why? Why that day in that lesson? I don't know. But maybe that opportunity was there for him at that time when it might not have existed any other time. And so he said, I want to become a New Testament Christian. And he along with many others were baptized in Jesus Christ. We opened 12 church buildings. 
Myself and Jimmy G, we were teaching in the preacher lectureship. One of my elders at Willett, Brother Steve Draper, I think that was his 10th trip. He was going and opening up church buildings, and I had the opportunity to go to some church buildings. And I wanted to show you the pictures of this building because most church buildings don't look like this. You come up into a village, and you'll know it's a church building. They might have a sign, and you'll, you'll know because the rickshaws are there, the motorcycles, and they've met in this location. And you can hear the microphone. They're singing or preaching or praying. And we come to this location and see the outside of the building. I thought, that's a beautiful building. You don't see that often. And inside the building, you can see above the chalkboard there, they're studying the Red Sea crossing. You don't have to know Telugu to know they're studying the Red Sea crossing. And you see the decorations all around it. And John says, brother, there was a man who was a Hindu idol maker in this village. And they taught him the gospel. And instead of making idols, he wanted to use his skills in the Lord's church. Of course, we don't have idols. These are not idols. They don't worship these things. They're decorations. We decorate by choosing the color carpet or stain on the wood or the pews. They decorate in different ways. And so he turned, using his skill to making idols, to now serving Jesus Christ and bringing glory and honor to God and recognition. When you go by there, you can't help but see that. And everyone in the village will go by and say, that's not Hinduism. What is that? And they see the cross. And they see the decorations inside. And I wanted to share that with you. Most church buildings don't look like that. But I thought that was a very good story. The man who converted to Jesus. This location was, as you saw the picture earlier, we crossed over the mountains. We went about three and a half hours to go to the flood affected areas. This building is out in the middle of the country. I think probably about a mile back to the west, there's a village there, just a few huts. And back to the east, there's nothing for a long way. So the people that would meet at this location are walking a long ways to come to the church building. It's the middle of the field. And you can't see it, but to the right, there was a sign that said flood relief. In July and August, the river is about two miles away from that location. And the floodwaters came very close to that building. Two miles from the river. That's how bad the flood was. And so that was sort of the headquarters to dispense food and items to help individuals. We opened that building that day. It was a very nice day. There were about 25 people there. And again, you're thinking they're all members of the Lord's church. And Brother Steve, my elder, preached that day. We always preach when you open up a building because you never know. We go there that day and that time to open that building and preach the gospel and seven souls responded to the Lord's invitation. We're getting ready to leave. We're getting in the cars to leave to go further west. And you see the lintel there. It's, it's palm leaves and wood. And during the service, I'm looking out the door and I see a woman out there cooking. It's not a very big place. And she's cooking because the members are going to eat after we leave. And she has a baby there in a sling. She's swinging it back and forth. And we get to her leave and he says, Brother, that's where the preacher lives. He lived in the village a few miles closer to the river. In his house, he lost everything. And he could have said, I've got to go somewhere else. I'll go live with my family. I can't do this anymore. But he chose to remain working with this congregation. And so he's living now just temporarily in that hut. And he's been living there since the floods. There's not much to it at all, folks. That's how much he loves the Lord. Man, it was encouraging to be there that day and to see that. And they're going to build him a little metal building out there before too long and he'll live next to that location. This was one location. This was on the Lord's Day and I traveled 
to this place, and this place was quite unique, and it's going to play a short video clip. You see all those people there? That's a huge, huge congregation. That was the third time they've added on to that building. The third time they've had to add on to that building. The man that was leading the singing there, you might have seen him temporarily. He's leading the singing. He's the preacher, and he's one of four elders. And I got to meet those men. And Brother John told me, he said, Brother, that preacher, he averages about 50 conversions a year. That's why they've had to add on three times. And it was very nice to be there that day. They had already worshipped, and we had worshipped that morning. We were just visiting, and little children were getting up while I was preaching, and they were going to the back, and and I said, it might be time to stop. (laughs) Because they were waiting outside, they wanted to eat. (laughs) So they had already heard preaching. They had already worshipped, and they were hungry, and so it was well after lunchtime. And so it was very nice to be at that location. The third time they've had to add on to that church building. And then visiting the flood-affected areas. That smaller building you saw earlier, about two miles east of the river, and it was just right on the edge of the flood, and this was one mile west of the river. At that point, the water is about 10 or 11 foot deep. That picture is taken on the third floor of a building where Christians live. What you're looking there is a church building, and the middle floor is where they'll assemble. The bottom floor is where the preacher lives, and it's completely underwater. He lost everything. And as we went into that building, you could still see the watermarks on the wall. They'll always be there and always a reminder of the floodwaters that came. The children's home there, about 40 children, they were all rescued. The preacher stayed. He would not leave until they were all rescued. And then sometime later, they were able to come back and to get him. We visited that location. This is when the preacher was rescued. So the waters had receded some. At that point, you can see the rectangular building on the right. That's the, uh, the left. That's the children's home. So at that point, still, the water is about six to seven foot tall. It's receding. And then we arrived that day. Of course, the floodwaters are completely gone. And boy, they were happy to meet us. And Brother John said, Brother, you're going to preach. I said, okay. I got a lot of things I could say, but I chose to speak on God's use of water. There's always been water in the plan. The building was full. It was very encouraging. I don't know if anyone lost their life from that congregation, but the building was full that day and the children were all out there. They used this location to provide food for individuals and to provide some supplies for the children, some clothes and school supplies. They lost everything. Everything was gone. And where are they going to run for help? Insurance? They don't have insurance. Where are they going to seek help? They're going to seek help from us because we can help them. That's the top of the ceiling. That's where the water was. I'm six foot four, and so you can see that's several feet taller than I am standing there in the middle, and that's where the floodwaters had gone to. I don't know how many of those children are there because their parents died in the flood, but you'll notice there's a young boy standing in front of me in a blue shirt, and here he is in this picture. He's 14 years old. And I sat with him on his bed, and I thought, that's my son. My oldest, Joseph, is 14. And I thought, that's my son right there. How do we not know that that location is there and that the floods came and the children's home is opened and the Lord's church is faithful and they stay strong for that young man to have an opportunity to live in that home and to hear the Bible day in and day out. 95% of the children will become Christians. 95%. He will marry a Christian one day because they have arranged marriages. 
How do we not know for such a time as this in that location that one day that young man will become a gospel preacher? Because that home existed there. Because the floodwaters came and the circumstances and all these things worked out the way they were. Not because we chose so, but maybe because God's plan could be fulfilled. And that young man, amongst many others, could become a New Testament Christian. And one day maybe be a preacher. We don't know, but God will. Esther wasn't certain, but God was certain and he knew. And so what was she going to do? Take the opportunity. That's what she was going to do. And that's what we seek to do as Christians. Very quickly, here are some more of the orphans and widows. This is in Rampa. The schoolgirls are sitting there in the evening. The sun's going down and they're doing their homework. Not a single adult had to walk around and monitor them. Teenagers, you're doing the homework at home. Your parents have to deliver your shoulder. Put your phone away. Stop goofing off. Wake up. Not a single adult had to walk around those girls and to remind them to get their work done. They're learning three languages. Telugu, Hindi, and English. And they're studying math and science. And we saw their work. Those young girls are in another location. They couldn't speak English, but we used sign language and we used motions and gestures and I said some things and we had a good time. And then you see those children in the bottom there as we visited those children that lived in the home outside of Rampa. Then the young boys in Rampa, they're sitting inside doing their schoolwork and every single one of them, we could not skip a child. They wanted us to see their homework. And I could understand the English and I said, oh, very good, very good English. And then they got to the Hindi or the Telugu, and I said, I have no idea. When he got to the math, I said, nope, put that away. I don't want to see the math. But they were very proud of their schoolwork. Very proud for us to be there and see them. In Tuni, the children's home, the children were doing some kind of song and dance, and they were jumping up and down and hitting the ground and turning around. I have no idea what they were saying, but they did it for us. For such a time as this in the orphans' and widows' homes, 95% of those children become Christians. You and I, one day... We're faithful to God and we persevere. We'll stand in heaven and no doubt we'll be there standing right beside those children because they'll be taught the gospel. They'll become obedient and they'll be faithful in their service to God because of the support that's provided for them for such a time as this. Here are the widows. Again, a widow isn't always someone who's lost her husband. It could be that she has no support whatsoever. And so there are about 40 that live in the home there in Rampa. And the lady here on the right You can see her picture holding her sorry. She is 90 years old. We met her in April, and we learned that she cannot read. Never learned to read, but she has memorized Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. And she never misses a widow's prayer meeting. And we're there in Rampa. We're there for the two days of the preacher lectureship. She's leaving the compound and walking four miles. They offer her a ride, but she chooses not to have a ride. She walks four miles twice a day to go to the church building and come back and then to go back to the church building. And I was encouraged by her. She could have ridden. It wouldn't wouldn't have been anything wrong with that, but she wanted to walk. And all I thought was there are members of the Lord's church who have the nicest cars and can afford the gas and live so close to the church building, yet they won't get in their cars and drive just a few minutes. And she refused. She refused a ride and was certain she was going to walk and be there every time the doors are open. And what a great encouragement for such a time as this with the widows. If the Lord wills, October 30th, that's a Monday, we will leave to fly to India once again. This time the trip will be longer and there are five of us that are going. We ask for your prayers. 
as we could say about many times before about the campaign in November and the campaign again, if the Lord wills for such a time as this, we don't know if in that time and that opportunity that's provided for us, that we're able to do the will of God to bring glory and honor to Him that some soul who in no other time and no other place might be able to hear about deliverance provided through Jesus Christ. So we close this evening. Think about what we've been talking about for such a time as this in India. India, India, think about the things that are happening in India. What about in this congregation? You're here in this location, and location isn't the most important thing. It's not about the building, it's about the God's people who get together, but you're meeting in this location. I remember when you were in the old building, I visited there one time. But you're here in this location. And since you moved here, I know now there are way more houses on the other side. And there's the apartments over here, and there's going to be something over there. How do you not know that this location, you meet here for such a time as this? Because those were going to be built and the apartments are there and something's going to be built over here and there's neighborhoods around here that you exist here and you meet here because no one else can be, could go and knock on the door and say, hey, we're meeting just right down the road. Why don't you come visit with us? What about in your neighborhood? Remember, I may not be able to talk to your neighbor, but you can. I hope your neighbor knows you're a member of the Lord's church. I hope your neighbor knows that you're going to follow the Bible and you care about their soul and you want them to learn of deliverance and of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so the last statement we'll say is maybe this. You're here this evening for such a time as this to obey God. How do you not know that you're able to get in the car this evening or to walk and you made it here safely and this time, out of no other time in your life, maybe this is it, the last opportunity that you have. Remember Mordecai said, whether you do anything or not, Esther, deliverance will be provided for God's people. This evening, no one can deliver your soul unless you do something. You have to take the opportunity. Maybe you've not been faithful in service to God as a Christian. And you realize, I need to take the opportunities provided for me. For such a time as this, I need to do something to bring glory and honor to God. And you realize that, you want to repent, we'll be willing to pray with you and pray for you. If you're not a Christian, put on Christ in baptism. Take the opportunity provided this evening. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name. Put Him on in baptism and faithfully serve Him all the days of your life. For such a time is provided right now as we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.